Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert Kennedy. Why did you take that pause? I was thinking about how you said, welcome. You always do the welcome. It's really high and it's like sort of inaudible and far away. Okay, well, I'm just trying to spice it up at the beginning, you know, in case people have been listening to something boring. This is not boring. This is the podcast, Segway Man, where we give you the tools you need to fight for a better future for who, Brian? Everyone. Everyone. Uh, We give you the context straight from the smartest people on earth and the action steps you can take to support them. Tell them who who those people are, Brian. I mean, those people are scientists. They're Uh doctors. They're nurses. uh, Engineers, some of them. Farmers, a couple. Politicians. Astronauts. Mm -hmm. A reverend once. A reverend. Business people. The whole whole shebang. Business Uh, people. They are fantastic. And we have a great one today. Uh, This is your friendly reminder. You can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Or you can email us at funtalk at importantnotimportant.com. And you can join tens of thousands of other really smart people and subscribe Mm -hmm. to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. That's right. Uh, On this week's episode, Brian, oh boy, we're talking about the most comfortable and sustainable shoes on the planet that I know of. We're talking about all birds. All birds. Yeah. All birds. And our guest, who's our guest? Huh? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh. Our guest, Hana Kajimura. And she runs sustainability at one of my favorite shops, Allbirds. That's right. Uh, she's here to talk about building sustainability into product from the very start, uh, using it as a competitive moat, and using storytelling to improve fashion's carbon footprint. Um, because if the clothes we wear aren't telling a story, then uh, I don't know what you... I guess you're just mean. You're just either shorts, sweatpants, and a t-shirt, I guess, at that point. It's that, that same pair of pants... And a shirt. I, yeah. It's the same pair of pants all the time. And the Patagonia all birds. Pants always all birds. And all, always all birds. Yeah, we're just shills, basically. So anyways, yeah. uh, great conversation. Really enjoyed talking to Hana, and I uh, think you guys will too. She's awesome. The company's awesome. Let's listen. All right. Our guest today is Hana Kajimura, and together we're talking about uh, arguably the most sustainable and comfortable shoes on planet Earth. Hana, welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. For sure. We're happy you're here. Start off, I guess, just by telling everybody who you are and what you do, Hannah. Yeah. Um, so my name's Hannah, and I lead sustainability at Allbirds. Allbirds was founded as a B Corp and a public benefit corporation back in 2016 as a footwear brand launching the world's first wool shoes um, and since expanding into other products. But uh, sustainability has always been at the heart of what we do, and I was lucky enough to join early on about two and a half years ago to be responsible for both the environmental and the social impact of our products and business. That's awesome. I like that you say it covers uh, the environmental and social side because um, I, I think it's pretty crystal clear to everybody that that those things are, those things are pretty intertwined, uh, or yeah, at least they need connected. to be more so. So cool. We are hat. We're proud Allbirds owners, the both of us. Quite a, um, quite a, quite a few. Love quite it. Now they do underwear, apparently. Yeah. Well. Anyway, we'll get into it. <laughs> uh, quick reminder for everybody: our goal is to provide some uh, context for our our topic uh, at hand today, and then we'll dig mm-hmm. into action oriented questions and what everybody out there can do uh, to to help support. Awesome. Uh, that sounds great, Hannah. We'd like to start with one important question to set the tone of this fiasco. Instead of saying, tell us your life story, we like to ask, Hannah, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Wow. What Mm -hmm. an opener. (laughs) I encourage you to be bold. You're here uh, for a reason, both uh, talking into your USB microphone or your computer, but also, you know, figuratively. Yeah. Thanks for the vote of confidence. I think if we start with that premise of I am here for a reason, I think I'm constantly searching for what that reason is and building upon that story. But for now, I would say it's uh, to figure out ways to use business as a force in solving the climate crisis. Um, And then probably specifically within my role now is to make climate science fashionable, which it sounds like you guys are very on board with, too. To be clear, oh, we're yeah. not fashionable. We're behind the effort, but well, we're definitely not. Unless, like, we're wearing your shoes. That's it. 
<laughs> yeah, I think what's been interesting for me in, in starting this job was realizing, as someone who always cared deeply about climate and thinking that solar companies and um, electric vehicle companies were really where I wanted to put my effort, that in joining a, a fashion or apparel company, different industries certainly have different roles to play in solving the climate crisis. And fashion's probably not going to unlock global emissions reductions and save us from ourselves. But I think what our superpower is, is bringing the conversation into the mainstream and helping our customers understand some of these more complex topics and, and get excited about finding solutions to them. Well, I love that. I mean, look, it's going to take the kitchen sink, right? It's um, uh, it's not just about creating a nice new revolutionary fashion. Um, it's it's going to take personal actions and institutional and regulatory and corporate actions and startup actions and electrification. Electrific- oh my God, coffee. Come on, come on, okay. coffee. Get there. Electric buildings. Um, and it's going to take, you know, regulating the hell out of combustion engines and it's going to take fixing, like you said, fast fashion, which we'll, we'll dig into, which, you know, has some issues, uh, but but could definitely be helpful, but can also be cool along the way. So I'm, I'm excited to dig into that, uh, today. So, uh, thank you for that honest response. Uh, we, we, we believe in you. That's why you're here. So, Talk, uh, some context for today. Uh, Brian, what what are shoes? Back in the day... You want me to... Oh. No, I don't. No, it was rhetorical. It. Uh, yeah. If you were lucky enough to be able to afford shoes way back, they're probably made of um, leather or, depending on where you lived, uh, wood, maybe, or canvas. Uh, but then everybody wanted shoes, uh, and that wasn't super feasible for the local cobbler. So we started building companies that make shoes and building them out of materials uh, sort of final stage materials like rubber and uh, plastic or foam so you can bounce on them or polyester and nylon. And now everybody gets shoes, which is great. Yay. Um, there's there's practical shoes. There's not very practical shoes. Uh, there's sports shoes and luxury ones and, and heavy-duty work ones and ones that are just specifically to be comfortable and waterproof ones, and the list goes on and on. Uh, the problem is the one thing that sort of unified all those for a long time is that they're made out of basically dinosaur bones, right? Not, not great. Everybody loves dinosaurs. We should keep them, keep them in the earth. Um, so the extraction, and this is just such a common theme with so many things these days. And, and basically anything that came out of the 20th century is the extraction and the refinement and the production of the raw materials to make your shoes, uh, not to mention the eventual discarding or and or disposal of, of such items, obviously it's not great. You know, like our energy sources or or your Tupperware or your plastic bottles and, and your clothing, another thing we're, we're working on confronting, right? It, it's, it's past time to take a step back and go, yes, it's great when everyone has shoes. The sho- shoes in many places still uh, are a measure of, of, of poverty. They're essential. Um, but we can also make them now radically more sustainable and we have to stop with the oil and and we got to stop turning all the oil into this stuff that never breaks down and ends up uh and or either in the ocean in the air in our water in our bloodstreams whatever it might be and we just cut down so many lovely things along the way so i want to talk today with hana about building the most sustainable shoes on planet earth i'm very excited about this uh so hana fashion and I guess in particular, this whole fast fashion thing, the Zaras of the world and such, right? They're, they're one of these building blocks of the climate crisis that we're increasingly aware of, but haven't exactly measured, uh, much less really taken on as emphatically as we are some of these other verticals, right? Like like the things I couldn't pronounce earlier, um, like <laughs> electrification and transportation and agriculture, right? Um, so... In doing some some research on on your company and and yourself, um, I, I've heard you talk about fashion leading the climate fight through storytelling. What do you mean by that, and uh, why does it matter to to orient yourself that way? Yeah. So as you mentioned, there's still a lot of debate about the exact science and numbers and what percent of global emissions is our industry. But best guess from a couple of different studies is that it's somewhere between. 
5 and 10% of global emissions comes from apparel and footwear, which is wow. single single digit percentage points might not sound like a ton, but when you think about the universe of emissions, that's actually quite substantial for one industry to be responsible for all of that. And sure. the reason why both it's so hard to measure, but also so significant is because it touches all of those other industries that you just listed. Like we source materials from agriculture. We're connected, unfortunately, to the petrochemical industry. We manufacture in factories and use electricity. We ship things. We sell them in retail stores. And so we're kind of picking up emissions across each step of that value chain. Mm-hmm. And it is hard to measure, but we know our impact is is pretty significant. The flip side of that is that making meaningful reductions is really difficult because you're kind of picking off emissions from each of those phases once again. And Mm -hmm. I do think those emissions reductions are enabled by advances in other industries like electric vehicles, like ocean liners run on biofuels, like solar panels at factories. And so ultimately those technologies are going to be the ones that dig us out of the climate crisis. um, And we need to keep pushing those technologies, but they're not going to be the ones that change the narrative and bring the public into consciousness about caring about these issues. A solar company is never going to be the storyteller, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I could be proven wrong. Whereas fashion in our industry has this, particularly our business, which has a direct relationship to customers, has this direct line to tell those really emotional stories and help people understand really complex topics like carbon emissions and climate change. And I really think that's that's the place that fashion and apparel is going to have impact. Well, people already use, I mean, they have forever, right? Used fashion to tell a story about who they are and, and the, I guess their status and, um, you know, maybe a little bit about their personality, you know, uh, um, how, how flashy is it? How muted is it? Um, how practical is it? Things like that. If, if you were lucky enough to be able to afford a fashion per se, or to, to have a, a variety of options. And that goes all the way down to, to in, in some cases your underwear, um, but, but certainly your, your shoes, right? So like you said, um, it would be great if a solar company was able to really nail down uh, storytelling and make that part of the reason to become uh, popular and effective and, and competitive. Yeah. But until then, it seems like fashion has this built-in uh, crutch they can use, which is to turn that around and tell a slightly different story, I guess. Yeah, it's wild how emotional our clothing is and the kind of relationship that we have with the brands that we purchase from because it's so tied to our individual identity. I mean, you just think about how hard it is to get someone to stop on the street to talk about Greenpeace, for example, or donating to a cause like that. But I'll have people stop me on the street all the time and say, oh my God, I love your shoes. I have a pair. They're the best thing ever, I think. And that's as odd as it is, is like a really important superpower to have and to use wisely. Well, it's interesting because you guys had to, you had to nail like good looking and comfortable shoes along with sustainable, right? It could, you can't just, I mean, we see this all the time. I mean, I stopped eating dairy like nine years ago and the first few years of, of uh, dairy free cheese was the darkness. I mean, this stuff, it, it, it off, it's awful. You know, and now there's some really great alternatives. Treeline, a few others. I mean, they're fantastic. You know, you've got Ripple Milk, all these things. But for, at the beginning, oh my God, it was so bad. But you guys uh, clearly decided and, and stuck with and really worked hard on. I mean, I remember I couldn't have ordered a, a original pair of wool runners earlier than I did. And I how often I walked around and people, you know, having no idea what they were made of, probably just assumed out of dinosaurs. And they'd look at them and go, well, what the what the hell are those? Where do I get those? And I'd be like, oh my God, they're so comfortable. Also, you know, it's made from like, this is false, but like, you know, like wool from virgin sheep somewhere that have, that have <laughs> never been yelled at, you know, it's, it's amazing. So it's, it's, it's fantastic that you guys have been able to tell both sides of that story. And I think that's something that our, our founders realized really early on is that we're not going to have the impact we want to have if our product is not 
amazing. If nobody buys our shoes, even if they're the most sustainable shoes on the planet, our impact is zero. Um, and so they really led with product first. And Mm -hmm. even interestingly, I think in the early days we talked about leading with product and letting sustainability explicitly take the backseat because again, we knew our impact was in people actually buying our shoe instead of another more traditionally made shoe. And so we wanted them to buy that shoe. And, um, that was key to our impact. And we're worried that if we led too much with sustainability, it would get confusing. It might turn them off. And I think that perspective has evolved over time, both as we've, I think, seen a real shift in both consumer awareness and sentiment towards sustainability, but also as we've kind of accepted responsibility for this microphone and platform that we have that even right now, if people don't really understand something like a carbon footprint, um, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily grabbing people and pulling them in, that we still have that responsibility to help them understand and keep talking about it until they understand. For sure, and you have to you have to empathize with people who are interested in this stuff, but aren't necessarily for whatever reason. Maybe because there's so much going on in the world aren't necessarily schooled in it. Um, again, whether they've elected yeah. to or not. Um, and by the way, maybe they've tried to, but tr- I mean, try looking up, uh, you know, uh, uh, carbon credits for your flights and what you should do and go down that internet rabbit hole. It's a nightmare. And there's some wonderful companies like TerraPass and some other ones. Um, but, you know, the, every three months, it's like it's like the question of like, should I take a vitamin? Every three months, they're like, vitamin E could make you live 10 years longer. And then the next day, someone's like, actually, vitamin E will kill you today. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's confusing and it's hard and there's disinformation and misinformation and also stuff we haven't figured out yet. So it's certainly commendable to try to define that for people as well as fighting on all these other fronts. Yeah. It's a total bridge of the art and the science, which I think is, is something that the climate change discussion needs help with sometimes (laughs) to your point. It's hard to even Google like annual emissions for the globe um, and figure out who you can trust on something so fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 wild west out there. The wild west. Hannah, you said the uh, the founders led with with product first. Um, so how you, you know now is sustainability built into into Allbirds' actual business processes? So we really started understanding first of all how important product was going to be and just just intuitively um, in order to have impact. But then we wanted to put numbers behind that to back that up. And so we started conducting what's called a life cycle assessment of our product, which is a way to measure all of the emissions created from the farm all the way through to when a customer disposes of the shoe at, oh, cool. at its end of life. And you tally up all of those carbon emissions and one of our key first findings was just the one that that the vast vast majority of our emissions come from our product so like you know you hear companies talk about renewable energy for their offices or retail stores but in reality if that company's making a product 95 plus percent of their footprint comes from their product and it's easy to dismiss that you know we're the product is made somewhere else, and so we're not responsible for uh, what sure. goes into it. But that is where your impact lies if you're if you just look at the numbers. And then, secondly, that within that product, raw materials make up the majority of emissions because you're raising sheep to produce wool. In the case of the rest of the industry, you're drilling oil out of the ground, and so that was how we. That was really the the core pillar of our sustainability program was material innovation and making sure that we were not just choosing the best materials off the shelf like wool, but um, really going deep to make sure that the farms that we were sourcing from followed the best in class standards and certifications. Um, So diligence on materials, I would say, is, is the primary way that we've built in this sustainability muscle. But then more recently, I think, as we said, okay, we're looking at our impacts and 
we're measuring them, we're tracking them, and of course we're trying to reduce them. But in the meantime, shouldn't we be accountable to those emissions? Like the fact that all of us can pollute and not pay for any of it is why we're in this. It seems a little ridiculous. Seems off. Yeah, and of course we're good intentioned and our our customers trust us and we're going to keep trying to drive our footprint to zero over time, but it's going to take time. And in the meantime, the very least we can do is be accountable to our footprint. So last year we committed to being a carbon neutral business from 2019 forward, which I think is a little bit different than what you hear from big corporations and governments who talk about like 2050 or 2030, if we're lucky. Um, And we do that through an internal carbon tax. So for every pair of shoes we produce, we calculate the carbon footprint of those shoes and put an associated tax into a fund. And then at the end of the year, we use that fund to purchase carbon credits from projects around the world that help to reduce or draw down carbon emissions. And so that is like a fundamental way that we try to incentivize internally mm-hmm. better decisions that help to minimize our footprint. That not just are we going to compensate, but a carbon tax doesn't just help us to compensate and offset our impact, but it also is an incentive structure to help us drive towards zero emissions over time. I love it. I mean, it's... That's so I, rad. We're, we're big We're big fans of, you know, I mean, to an extent, obviously, but the extent goes further and further these days as, as we're dealing with so many things at once. But, you know, the the ends justify the means in some ways, and, and we, we can't hold things and companies and people to a perfect standard, but we do need to see both incremental and radical progress. And so to have a goal of, of radical progress and to be public and publicly accountable to that and internally accountable to it in the way that you're making incremental progress along the way and finding ways to, for lack of a better phrase, you know, make up for what you cannot do is is a great standard. I mean, you, you look at companies that have had have have been inspirational on that front for a long time. Obviously, I think of places like Patagonia who are like, don't buy any more of our clothes. It's uh, it's helpful, and hopefully that can be a model for, for other places going forward. Yeah, and I think you said it earlier when you were talking about that we need to throw the kitchen sink at this and that companies and governments and individuals and all different types of organizations have a, have a role, important role to play, I think, we've got somehow stuck in this false hierarchy of like, we need to reduce as much as possible first. And then for whatever is left, we will offset Mm -hmm. or neutralize. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's what these net neutral by 2050 commitments mean. And I think coming at it with a fresh pair of eyes, we thought, well, if we're all acknowledging that we're going to have to by some sort of credit to net out our footprint in 30 years, shouldn't we just do that today and actually use it as a tool <laughs> to drive our footprint down over time? Like, In my opinion, the only reason why you wouldn't do that is because it costs money today. But if we acknowledge climate change is a problem because we're allowed to externalize our environmental impact, then it seems like, just seems like not a good enough answer. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we can do better. No one's, no one's, I mean, of course, perfect would be perfect, but that's just not going to happen. So please just do better. Do um, better. <laughs> you know, aim, aim higher, hey, do better. Hannah, how, how did you, how do you guys get your shoes to be water resistant and not be like just a toxic nightmare? That's a, that's a very good question. The number of times I've worn my original wool, like lovely light blue wool runners on <laughs> the so wrong great. day. They're so comfortable. Uh, that's am- I would love to, yeah, hear that. Yeah, well, I think. Are you saying that your wool run, your light blue wool runners have gotten destroyed, or they've actually held up pretty well? No, I mean they've they've held up well, considering like they're just wool. I mean, one would think they should be destroyed. Right. Uh, Don't but at the same time, I've obviously thought like at some point they're going to try to figure out making these water resistant. And then my next thought was like, how do you do that when you make everything out of trees and sheep? Like, I don't understand. I literally wouldn't understand how to begin that. So I empathize with you, but I'm so curious about it. And then then we can get back to like how, how to save the world. But this is important. This is important too. I think 
our thought process has been exactly the same. We started with choosing merino wool in the first place, which I think to the we didn't talk a ton about, but your intro about how shoes have evolved over time from materials found in nature to being predominantly fossil fuel derived. We challenged ourselves to think back to simpler times before the advent of cheap plastics um, mm-hmm. and think about what property, what amazing properties natural materials have on their own. So wool on its own is anti-odor. It uh, dries really quickly and, and is hydrophobic, so meaning it hates water. So naturally is a, yeah, is a great uh, material for something like shoes that is on your foot. It's normally pretty stinky regulates temperature and keeps water out. So naturally, we're at an advantage there. But then we also knew, especially as we started to launch and grow the business in Europe and particularly the UK that gets a lot of rain, we were hearing from customers all the time that it just like wasn't, the natural property wasn't cutting it uh, on those rainy days. And so we did want to pursue a water resistant version, but it sounds like as you're familiar, most of the water repellency treatments that exist are extremely toxic. And so Mm -hmm. we challenge, again, setting sustainability as the constraints of the experiment. If we do water repellency, we're not going to use fluorine, which is the the main chemical of concern in waterproofing. And so we work to develop a fluorine-free waterproofing treatment. And that is what we use. Um, we do have a couple of models that are now water resistant. This is very exciting. Yeah, I'm looking at them right now. What's it called? The puddle guard is what you call the water resistance? Um, and they're called the, the wool runner mizzle. Mizzle is apparently a term for a misty drizzle, signifying <laughs> that it is not okay. for a downpour, but it can right. handle a little bit of water. Sure, 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 sure. I love that. This is great. Brian frequently just buys things during during the podcast that people are talking about. So this is fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's but it makes sense. It's relevant. I'm not just like shopping for, you know, who knows what. No, that would yeah, that would be frustrating. That'd uh, be crazy. Yeah. Hannah, I'm curious cuz you seem to not only be uh, judging by 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 Allbirds and and their success and 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 by your excitement talking about this uh, quite quite into this. It's not just like you know, doing a job. What 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 is it about this particular job that suits you? You know, why why shoes? Why all birds? Why sustainability? Since I, I studied environmental science um, in college and at that point identified that climate change is really the issue that I wanted to spend my career working on because I wanted to choose the most, very strategically choose the issue that was going to be, I thought, most central to our existence going forward, Mm -hmm. both from an impact perspective and a job security perspective. And I was really convinced of the power of business to bring about that change. Um, And in a lot of cases, model what's possible from a government or policy perspective. A great example being our carbon tax at Allbirds and kind of signifying that, hey, this is possible and we will pay for it. And I was really lucky to be able to marry those two things together in this role and that Allbirds was thinking so boldly and hiring for sustainability so early on mm-hmm. in its lifetime. But I wouldn't be happy at just any company. I think I'm super inspired by the leadership of our co-founders who time and time again show this conviction and doing the right thing that is super motivating. But then I also love being in a small company where my job is as diverse as attending global climate summits and talking about climate policy to as um, menial as sorting our trash in the alleyway and getting to visit farmers in New Zealand and factories in Asia. And maybe most importantly, just develop this repository of fun facts and knowledge um, from how sugarcane is grown in Brazil to how to calm a sheep. Um, uh, <laughs> wow. Hold on. How, how do you calm a sheep? I you were going to stop me there. <laughs> One moment. Please indulge us. 
for for shearing and other purposes, if you put a sheep on its like you lift him up and put him on his butt, he gets really calm. Okay, so I'm wow. going to stop you there too. Huh. How does one pick up a sheep and put it on its butt? <laughs> and is this like a like a like a new higher training thing that you have to do at all birds? Is I wish, but it, I mean, it's just like a like your household pet or your dog. Wow. You know, hug him tight and lift him up and lean back. You're halfway there. <laughs> Love it. Uh, that's essential. See, Brian, I, I don't make you do anything. It's uh, I'm going to get a sheep. We're definitely going to do the sheep thing. But yeah. yeah, I think I, I again, thought that working in that in order to have maximum impact, I did need to work in the energy sector or um, the transportation sector. But I think like the key learning of this job is that actually our industry is connected to all of those things. And so mm-hmm. um, we get to keep a finger on the pulse of new developments in every industry, which is really interesting. For sure. And and I love that you're evaluating the whole chain. I mean, you know, we ha- again, uh, to, to found a company and say, we're going to take on the whole supply chain from the very beginning is like, it's a tall order um, on top of making fantastic shoes that are sustainable. You know, y- you want to be incremental, but, but, but proactive and, and radical where you can be and a leader in, in an industry where you can be, but it's hard. I mean, I j- literally just saw today that you know, Apple said they're going to go fully carbon neutral by, by 2030, which, you know, I know I, I, I believe they've had, mostly solar powered offices and data centers up till now. But now it's the hard part, which is looking at the rest of their supply chain, which to be clear is insane. And so I, I admire them for being like, no, we're going to, we're doing this thing. And, but I'm also just like, good luck. Oh my God. You know, I can't imagine. Yeah. I think you, you touched on sort of our unique challenge, which has been that we, as a, as a new company rooted in sustainability, We've had all of the goodwill and intention of doing things the right way from the beginning, but we're also starting from scratch. And uh, sustainability has come to mean 15 different things to 15 different people, from animal welfare to human rights to climate change to chemistry. And the expectation is that you are doing all of those things perfectly and we know just from instinctively that if we tried to if we tried to do 10 things we could either do 10 things really shallowly and mm-hmm. maybe not so well or we could really move mm-hmm. the needle on a few and for sure we've tried to be really intentional about prioritizing those issues based on both our founders conviction in starting the business as well as where we are in our trajectory and where we think we can have the biggest impact. So on that note, because you've been around for, you know, a few years now and uh, other, it seems like other companies in shoewear and elsewhere are, are starting to take these on. If we can dip our toes into capitalism uh, in the marketplace for, for a moment, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about basically reduced carbon footprints and, and sustainability um, as a competitive advantage uh, in, in 2020 and going forward yet. Do you feel like that's something that exists yet? Are you guys aiming more towards rising tide lifts all boats? Um, you know, and, and I guess also like who else is, is succeeding here on a similar level to you guys? Absolutely. I think it's become a competitive advantage. Um even over the last couple of years, like within my time at Allbirds, I think I've seen a pretty significant shift um, where, you know, as a company, we were monitoring any sort of news about other brands in sustainability. And three years ago, there might be one a week and now there's 10 a day. I think the conversation and the bar has been elevated in the U.S. a little bit, but particularly in other markets, like especially in Europe, for us, sustainability is probably the leading um, reason why a customer would support us or why a journalist would want to talk to us. Um, and to back that up, I think one of the big surprises for us this year was that our first feature in Vogue 
was about our carbon footprint labeling initiative. Huh. So, That's amazing. Yeah, climate change and carbon has become mainstream even in, in fashion. And going back to the leadership of the company, I think that took foresight to really want to lean into these topics when people didn't really understand them, but also to continue to challenge ourselves that as this becomes more of a competitive advantage, we can't fall prey to the temptation to keep it close to the vest. So as we, I don't think we've talked about this yet, but we started publishing the carbon footprints of all of our products just a few months ago, both as an accountability measure internally to to help Mm -hmm. us commit to drive those footprints to zero over time, but more importantly, to spark an industry conversation and challenge the notion of why don't we know the environmental impact of the products that we buy and consume? Um, And how can we expect customers to make better decisions for the climate if they have zero information to go off of? I'm I'm so sorry to interrupt. Like I've been excited to talk about this ever since I was definitely like, well, I was like, oh, I should reschedule this conversation. Oh, I should also buy some more shoes. And I noticed that on the website recently. Uh, And it's awesome. And it made me think about, um, and and forgive me if if this is something you guys have have talked about too much, but about the... The, I guess the the I guess the only real legit comparison is like standardized nutrition labels, right? But to me, and and again, just tell me to blow off if this seems wrong. But the the key to making nutrition labels work, after, besides the ubiquity and how long they've been around, as much as they've changed or not changed, is is not just hey, this is how many grams of sugar. Or I guess now you can see even see added sugar on there. It's that it's this is 50% of your daily allowance. And and so I thought about, we had this uh, fantastic conversation um, back in 2019, which feels like, I don't know, a century ago at this so point. So long ago. Um, we talked with this uh, wonderful woman, Professor Julia Steinberger, and and the, the title uh, is, what are the energy requirements of well-being? Which seems kind of foo-foo, but it's basically about like, if we're going to get this under control, right? Is it possible to quantify an objective allotment that allows for a quote unquote like good life. And then of course we went down rabbit holes of what that means historically and how white people and basically in America just blow that out of the water and what it means for different cultures. It's all great, but I guess my point when I talk about the the 50% of your daily allowances people need not only like the raw numbers, but a, a reference point, you know, what's their allowance. And I'm, I'm curious if, if, if that's part of the thinking as you guys have started to define this, which is so great to put it out there and just be like, look, here's a measuring stick for, again, for the industry and competitors and, and people. It's like, how, how do we just not dumb it down, but, but make it relative to someone's life? So, Does that make sense? Yeah. And you touched on the challenge, which is When you say we report our carbon footprint in terms of kilograms of CO2 equivalents. Mm -hmm. uh, And the the challenge to that is nobody knows what that means. Right. 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 They're like, that's great. And then you start trying to explain. It's like as if you filled a balloon with this much gas and then put it on a scale. And I think that that's not really the point. Like we also don't know what a calorie is. Most of us, it's a scientific unit of measure. But because it's so ubiquitous, we've developed this relational understanding to know that um, if I eat a burger today for lunch, maybe I should have a salad for dinner. And as you said, that sort of percent daily value. And I think we absolutely need to develop that for carbon and the environmental impact of our decisions. And it's totally possible. I think one, you know, we know how much the average person emits in a year, in the U.S., it's around 100 tons of carbon per person per year, which we mm. know is too much. So certainly we can create estimates about what that should be to, to maintain our desired climate commitments. But I think mm-hmm. equally as important, we need to develop a library and an understanding of the carbon impacts of different products we buy, but also decisions we make. And that's been one of the central challenges in launching this program is at once in order to help customers understand what 
7.6 kilograms of CO2 equivalents means we need to put Mm -hmm. it in context with other shoes, other apparel items, other things in our lives. But also the reason why we're doing this is because those numbers don't exist, at least in any sort of standardized or comprehensive way. Right. And there's places like, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Project Drawdown, they're they're fantastic and they're so well-meaning and so smart and so hardworking on all this stuff and and they've been like no if we do these hundred things in this order like this is going to make the biggest difference and you know we've started to measure generally things like flying and so for a year everyone was like that's it no one's allowed to fly anymore and it's like okay but also if we take a step back uh, it's important to know that it's mostly just like rich white people who fly. And yes, it's detrimental, um, but most people don't. So that news is going to be null and void to them. And that's, again, where it comes back to this, like you get 2000 calories a day and how you choose to fill them and, and the quality of how you choose to fill them is is up to you. Um, you know, here's here's the things. And we're going to outlaw some shit like trans fats and some things uh, like broccoli, we're not going to make affordable enough. But the point is, is like, having sort of this objective thing, even if we can get close to it, you know, maybe you guys don't, don't totally agree with, with fashion and especially the subset of, for instance, footwear with drawdown, you know, if we can work together to get close to that. So people understand about the choices they're making, but also the relative choices they're making feels like the key. Like if I do this, I can't do this, or I have to do less of this because it means X. Yeah, that is absolutely the, the ultimate goal. And back to your conversation, your your question about competitive advantage, I think that was a key moment or decision point that we had in launching this initiative was, okay, we're releasing figures in a void. Uh, what happens if a competitor <laughs> says they have a lower carbon footprint than ours? Like, is that possible? Mm-hmm. Are we okay with that? Sure. And I think to our co-founders credit, they were like, hey, if we get people talking about the carbon footprints of their products, let alone publishing a number that's lower than ours, that is a win. Like we have been in the wrong race and we're in a new kind of race to try to reach carbon neutrality. And if we're driving that process through competition, that's exactly what we're trying to do. For sure. I mean, you know, one, one fewer forest fire, right? Right. Hey, wh- how? why can't somebody like Nike, for example, use the, the same mis- materials that, that you guys do? Just scale or... Is it because they don't care? <laughs> or is it because they don't care? <laughs> A bigger company would theoretically be better positioned to use sustainable materials because they can mm-hmm. buy in bulk. And I think that's ultimately what we're all after is, as you said earlier in the context of like non-dairy cheeses, the initial versions are expensive and not that great. And if we put show demand for them, um, the product will get better and the cost will come down over time. That's why synthetic materials like polyester and nylon are so cheap now is because that's where we've put all of our time and energy over the last number of decades in terms of innovation in our industry. And we need to shift that demand so I think in most cases, the reason why companies aren't using completely sustainable materials is cost in almost yeah. every instance. Yeah. They do currently cost more in most cases. And that's an impact that we are able to absorb because of our business model of, of not relying on wholesale. And so we're able to put more of that margin behind the materials that we source. It makes sense. I mean, it make, yeah, it, it makes sense. It's like if they can, if they can absorb in some places higher prices for a little while and start to order in bulk. Hopefully, we bring these things down, or we find more sustainable ways to uh, grow the things, raise the things, uh, not dispose of the things. Somehow, find our way into a circular economy of some sort. Again, coming back to the whole Patagonia, like just bring us back your clothes, and we'll fix them. Please stop buying stuff. You know, it's a uh, it's appealing, but uh, you know, of course, it's going to take hard work. I, so I, again, I think of like how you said your job not only is, is, is the product side, but the social side and also like how to divvy up the trash out back. I, I think a lot, and this is usually more tech focused because these companies are by and large, uh, 
I don't want to say like nightmares, but they can be, but how, how every, at least these mostly uh, that we can touch American tech companies should be required to have like a, like a, like a chief liberal arts graduate on their seaboard, right? So they can stop destroying democracy and things like that. You seem to have built your role at Allbirds from scratch with a environmental science background, but also, uh, you know, a good perspective on business and capitalism, but also on, on things you want to do with a philosophy. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about basically like one, how do we clone you? But in a more, in a more detailed version, like where and how do we institutionalize your role at other startups and, and equally important at existing corporations? Like what's, what's transferable from, from your job and Allbirds and what's not? And you can start with fashion or whatever seems to make sense. Yeah. Because there's going to be a lot of our listeners that are like, I want that fucking job. I know. And I talk to them every day. And I do think that the these kinds of roles are becoming more and more common, but they're not as ubiquitous as they need to be, particularly at companies so early stage, which is when I think it really matters. Like at a certain point, if you add sustainability as a layer 10 years down the line out of some risk, desire to mitigate risk, it's the, the ship has sailed. I think you're too far gone at that point to really make a meaningful difference. And I think that's, yeah, you're right. I have an environmental science background um, from studying, but then I worked in, in management consulting and business strategy. And so coming to the world of sustainability from an outsider's perspective, I think I've really taken away that so much of this work is translates across business, certainly within our industry when we talk about labor supply chains and preferred materials, but outside as well. Like the principles of measuring and reducing carbon are the same, whether we're talking about a clothing company or a tech company. And so I think the real challenge is figuring out how to democratize that information and and systematize mm-hmm. it better. I think in the same way that we have, when you're starting a business, you have Shopify to set up your store and you have Stripe to handle your payments and you have Zenefits to do your HR and benefits, like there should be a sustainability version as well. Because not everyone has has the budget or the know-how to implement a sustainability program from scratch. As we've talked about, mm-hmm. it's quite technical um, and there's sure. many different, it's complicated and there's different areas of expertise, but the principles are the same. Um, and so it just shouldn't, the, all of the hard work and money and time that we've spent to build up the pillars of our sustainability program, not every new company should have to go through that. A lot of that could be, could be shared. And so we're constantly thinking about how we can share that information. Certainly informally, I think you know, I never would have expected that one of the strongest networks I would build in this job are with sustainability people at other companies, but certainly informally, but also trying to think formally about what that could look like. For sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's apples to oranges a little bit, but you know, you think about what Stripe did for online businesses and, you know, before everyone was building their payment structure from scratch uh, or using some version of early PayPal or something like that, and and you know Stripe and then Shopify, uh, you know, enabled a whole new world. And it's like two clicks. Hey, add this line of code to your website, and all you got is a shopping cart. Like it's crazy. And obviously, the methodology and philosophy, implementing the methodology and philosophy of of sustainability across a variety of industries and products and and things like that uh, is going to be a little more complicated. Um, and a little less black and white, but that doesn't mean, like you said, startups should have to, like, it, it, it doesn't mean there shouldn't be like a platform for at least the basics, right? Because there are, there are so many shared things across everywhere, no matter what your business you're getting into. Yeah, exactly. I think a prime example is to, to power this carbon footprint labeling initiative that we have, we had to build a internal tool to calculate the carbon footprints of our products. And we've spent thousands of dollars with consultants and thousands of hours on, on building this thing that we think is pretty 
applicable to most products in our industry. Mm -hmm. And no, it's not going to get to the level of specificity, specificity of your specific cotton vendor in India, but it'll get you pretty close. And I think we have to stop using that as an excuse to not do anything. And so that's a great example of something where we're like, we, we spent so much time building this. It should be transferable. What's the best way to make that happen and to enable other people to use this tool so that we can achieve the goal of having more carbon footprints out there and helping people develop this understanding. Yeah, it's just, I mean, the, the, the bottom line and, and, you know, of course, thanks to you guys for doing all that hard work and spending the time and the money and to getting to something that, that, that a lot of people should be able to use as like a starter package, essentially, because it's not good enough for the answer to be anymore like, where's your, where's your t-shirt come from? And like, good enough isn't, well, I don't think it's made out of oil by children. Um, does that count? Uh. It's like we're 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 so far past that. Like everything's on fire. There's got to be a more measurable way uh, of doing it. Um, all right, I don't want to go ahead. Please, please. Uh, just to finish that thought, we really believe yeah. in um, progress over perfection and not letting perfect be the enemy of good. We think a ninety percent right answer is better than zero answer at all. And I think our sort of newcomer status and size as a company has enabled us to lean into that a little bit more and potentially Mm -hmm. take a bit more risk than um, a large corporation might when reporting numbers like this. But as you said, we're too far gone to uh, worry about the decimal points. We have to directionally do what we know is the right answer and, and keep charging forward. Yeah. And again, it's easy to be like, oh, you know, shoes are, or like you said, greater fashion is single digits, maybe 10% or something close to that. And it's easy to sort of sneeze at it, but also like, holy shit, 10% would be a really great, uh, a really great achievement to knock off because we need to do anything. We need to do everything. You know, I'll take 9% in a heartbeat. Oh yeah. I feel like we talk about that. It comes up a lot here, that idea. Perfect is the enemy of good on this on this podcast and who we talk to. Yeah. Just fucking do it, you know? Do what we yep. can. All right. Uh, let's get to some action. Our goal here is to provide action steps, specific action steps that our listeners can can take to support you, Hana, and your mission uh, with with their voice and their vote and their dollar. So let's get into it. Uh, let's start with their, with their voice. What, what big actionable... Uh, specific questions can we all be asking our our local representatives uh, uh, to help to help support you? Yeah, I think on on the most micro sort of personal level, especially in terms of the things you buy. Again, going back to my point that um, the majority of of a product's impacts come from the materials that it's made out of. Ask mm-hmm. that question uh, if it's not in apparel. You have to disclose the material makeup. So take the time to look at the tags of the things you're buying. But in other industries, it's not as clean cut. But that's that's a first step based on the available information that we all have. Um, in terms of the unavailable information, I think you're exactly right that the voice of the customer is so powerful in a way that I didn't realize as a customer until I was on the other side of it. But when customers ask questions, we respond to everyone and we respond immediately and um, with the full force of the business. And so mm-hmm. asking the question, asking where was this made? What's the carbon footprint? If they can't tell you, why can't you tell me? Um, all of those questions actually spark a lot of dialogue and conversation and ultimately action within companies. So they're really important to ask. I love that. Is there is there are there things that we could be asking of of representatives and such about do, uh, better labeling practices, uh, things like that? About you know having someone at Allbirds uh, testify about uh, developing the carbon footprint measure calculator scale thing. Um, you know, are, are there things like that that can be pretty specific that people could be asking? When you say representatives, do you mean of a company or of the government? I mean of I mean of governments basically like uh, again at some point it's going to require a lot of these things are going to require 
education of legislators and their aides, uh, maybe in, in the opposite order, because that's usually the way it goes, but then also some form of, of lawmaking and, and regulation so that, so that we can start to phase out the bad stuff, but also learn where there are good models from those things, because otherwise they have no idea what they're talking about. Absolutely. I think um, a couple areas that come to mind specifically, one is materials and how we value natural materials in terms of how they're priced and how they're supported versus synthetics. And then the other is the idea of, if not a carbon tax, some sort of mechanism for paying for emissions. And I think, again, that's the lens that we've tried to take at Allbirds is how do we create, how do we um, voluntarily take on, penalize ourselves or take on potential policy measures in order to demonstrate the kind of future that we want to see um, and show lawmakers that we're ready uh, and that we believe this is the right way to go. Label it, carbon labeling is another example. I know that's been particularly in Europe, a topic of conversation is whether to start requiring transparency on environmental impacts of products. And Mm -hmm. we absolutely agree in that vision and direction. So we're going to start doing it ourselves. But yeah, the more that we can tell those stories and show that we can have a successful business and do these things at the same time, I think is a really important example to provide. Awesome. That's exactly what we're looking for. And then uh, what about with their dollar? I mean, you've already talked about the customers, uh, the customer's voice being important. I guess besides well, I can get allbirds.com, uh, whatever the whatever the website is, are there other fellow makers that you would love to give a shout out to where, where people could uh, uh, in, conduct some conscious ca- capitalism, I guess? Yeah, I, I mean, my immediate reaction is, B Corps, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about what that is, but for sure, um, it means all birds is a B Corp, which means two things to us. One, it means that we are incorporated as a public benefit corporation rather than a traditional C Corp, which means we have to be accountable to other stakeholders in the business besides shareholders like the environment, like our supply chain. But it's also a third-party certification where every three years we undergo a really, really rigorous assessment um, to basically ensure that we are living up to the promises that we are marketing publicly. And Mm -hmm. there is a community, I think, at this point of of 3,000 B Corps worldwide, um, not just within the consumer product space, also in services real estate, legal, pretty much anything you can think of. But I would encourage everyone to to look at that listing of companies and always try to support them when you have a choice in terms of buying your home cleaning product or the next backpack or suitcase. It's a great place to start to know that the companies you're supporting are doing what they say they are. Awesome. That's super helpful. Yeah, that's really great to know. That's super helpful. I would also give a shout out. There's a bunch of great companies that participate and nonprofits on the other side in the 1% for the planet program. I don't know if you guys do that one or not, but they've usually got a pretty good lead on, again, companies are trying to do the right thing at least. Exactly. It's a good, that's a good one. Um, uh, Is it time for the lightning round? uh, Just about. Uh, if you have it, it's not a lightning <laughs> round, uh, but it is quick. We just don't have another name for it. Hannah, um, if you, whether now or later, have any other recommendations for other world-changing humans we should talk to, um, please let us know. Uh, anyone else that inspires you and that's out there fighting for a better future uh, for everyone would be super dope. Uh, all right, last uh, last couple questions here, and then we'll get you out of here. Um, Hannah, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? It wasn't today. I I think if (laughs) I go way back, you know, I've been having a lot of conversations in the context of racial and social justice about my own power and privilege. And uh, one thing I've been reflecting on is the privilege of travel growing up. Um, My Mm. mom worked in philanthropy and international development. And so I got to see a lot of the world and 
I think it was probably in that like middle school time of going to some of these third world countries and just recognizing how privileged I was and then the power that I had in uh, bringing those stories home and raising awareness about other parts of the world. So that was certainly one. And then within the context of of all birds, one specific memory comes to mind. Mm -hmm. It was in my first couple of weeks there, and I'd never worked at such a small company before. I think there were like 50 of us, and, and we all sat in the same room. And I noticed that we had these individual trash cans at each desk. And because of that, people were mixing their recycling and compost and trash <laughs> rather than sorting them. And so uh -huh. one night, a coworker and I just took all the trash cans away um, and said, You monster. I'm sorry, <laughs> you have to walk to the kitchen and sort your trash properly. But I think that was the first time within the corporate context that I realized I have the power to make things happen, even on a small scale. Like You're like Batman stealing trash cans. It's fantastic. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Hannah, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Yeah, I think I touched on it earlier. There's a few faces and names that are coming to mind, but the common thread is that they are all my peers at other companies, um, sustainability leaders, um, mostly at, at apparel companies, but I'm in contact with them on almost a daily basis, comparing notes, texting, asking, how do you think about this? Just yesterday, someone shared like an example job description with me that I plan to leverage. And it's just been the most unexpected community of uh, mentors at other companies. And I've learned so much and I'm so grateful for the support, especially as a, as a new relative newcomer to corporate sustainability. Um, that's awesome. Oh man, that's gotta be the coolest, like uh, messages group thread. Um, yeah. Right. People out there uh, trying to change the world. Um, jealous. Brian, we need more friends. Um, uh, that's we'll awesome. Get there. All right, Brian, bring it home. Hannah, what do you do when you, uh, when you feel overwhelmed, when you need to escape and have so, some Hana time? Self-care. Very important. I've been paying a lot of attention to this. One is I live a couple blocks from the beach. So seeing the sunset every night at the beach has been a huge priority of mine. Always really helpful. Secondly, maybe more actionable for, for many of you out there, there's something called Dance Church. <laughs> what? What? If you Google Dance Church. Already did. Um, <laughs> every Wednesday at 5 and Sunday at 10, for those of us on the West Coast, there's a live streamed class wow. that is a mix between like jazzercise and ecstatic dance and aerobics, I guess. It's kind of all of the above, but it's a great opportunity to. And it's not, you know, the problem with some of these live stream classes is that they can see you too, and this is not mm -hmm. the case. So you can yeah, 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 yeah. let Nobody loose in your own home, blast the music, and no one will know. Um, cool. that's, that's amazing. As a longtime jazzercise and reaching back further, mousercise fan, uh, I this is very exciting. When, when everything locked down, I got my, my uh, three children... Um, uh, the Nintendo Switch thing, so they could do just dance. What, what is the whatever the uh, the dance game is? Yeah, this is very exciting. Very. Ex I'm going to make Brian do it. Except I am going to set up a camera in his house so I can watch him do it. No, I can choose to turn it off. She just said. We'll talk about it. It's a corporate thing. All right. Last question. Uh, Hannah, if you could send one book to Donald Trump, what book do you think he needs reading? We've got a really great list. Uh, of recommendations from all of our guests on Bookshop, um, and and we think you should throw one on there. Wow! And this is assuming he'll read it. Look, yes, yes. Or don't somebody get, will read it. Don't to go him. too far down that rabbit hole. It could be a picture book. It could be the Constitution, and you can assume he would listen, or it has pictures. Whatever you would like. Yeah, it could be an audio book. Sure. Um, well, one one thing we didn't talk much about, but is is 
The climate solution from the drawdown list that I'm most excited about is regenerative agriculture and how we can uh, change the way that we farm in order to create healthier soils and use natural carbon sinks to sequester emissions. And I think that one of my favorite books on that is called Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. And it's, it's a story about his family's journey to regenerative agriculture. And I think why that came to mind is because one, it's solution oriented, uh, which is Mm. important. And two, uh, there's a certainly a positive economic story to regenerative agriculture. And so again, proving that these practices that are better for the planet can also lead to economic growth is probably an important argument for him. Awesome. I love that. Uh, that's a great recommendation. Yeah, we've done some agriculture stuff on here, and uh, it, yeah. it um, again, one of those things is going to take some, um, some probably some large federal oversight and uh, reconditioning of of the laws and grants and things like that and the farm bill. But um, man, it could it could really uh, there could be huge progress. I read an amazing conversation with Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm about that, and uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty tremendous. Awesome. Uh, Hannah, is there a place where our listeners can follow you online? Uh, you can follow Allbirds at uh, allbirds.com <laughs> and on Instagram. <laughs> awesome. Rock and roll. Well, listen, Hannah, thank you uh, so much for your time today uh, and for all that you guys are doing there. Uh, it's a wonderful company, wonderful products. I'm, I'm excited that it is. Uh, you have been inspired and continue to be inspired by folks at other places doing the same thing. I'm excited that there are folks at other places doing the same thing and that hopefully we'll see more versions of this uh, uh, down the line. Um, it'll be a great one to to get off the list and, and wear comfortable shoes at the same time. And underwear now. Very exciting. I, I think if the, if the future of sustainable shoes is anything like the path that vegan cheese has made, then, we, then everything's going to be great. Leaps and bounds. Leaps and Leaps bounds. Leaps and bounds. We're on the road for sure. Just shoes and underwear. Right. <laughs> awesome. Very exciting. Well, Hannah, thank you so much. Uh, thank you have so an much. Awesome rest of your day. And thanks again for taking the time. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.